This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Top European leaders, European Union leaders, were in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador last week. The formal summit with Canadian leaders yielded some positive conversations. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. Welcome back. Michelle, nice to be back. Nice to talk to you. So what's the big takeaway from this summit? So the big takeaway, this was a very, very palsy summit. Uh, lots of love, lots of mutual admiration and, and nice warm comments back and forth between Canada and the EU. Uh, some invitations to get involved in some interesting sounding partnerships. Um, so this was a very, very friendly, warm and fuzzy kind of summit. But the the interesting takeaway, I think, is that this may not remain the status quo. Um, the current dynamic between them, which is as positive as can be, is dependent a lot on the political players involved, a lot of whom are set to change in the coming years. So a lot of the announcements that were made are based on the existing current dynamic uh, and, and seem quite promising. Remains to be seen, though, whether they can be either whether they can be implemented and whether or not this kind of dynamic will will survive the change of players that's likely to come through in the next couple of years. That's right. Whether it's actual changes inside the countries or within the block itself, because there's a lot of different elements going on there uh, in terms of the geopolitics of the continent. What were some of those alignments, some of those strategic alignments that were least identified in broad strokes last week? Sure. Well, a a big one that I find quite interesting is Canada has now been invited excuse me, officially invited to join a thing called Horizon Europe, which is a massive, massive research fund for European countries with a budget of 95.5 billion euros. That's a lot of money. Mm. Um, Canada has been invited to join that network, which would give us access to that same kind of funding for research, uh, which would give us uh, access to the European research networks. That stands to be a, a big boon for a lot of researchers. Lots of it, it focuses on a lot of green initiatives. That's the primary target of Horizon Europe. Uh, so that would be very much in line with the current government's climate policies. Uh, certainly would be a very exciting opportunity for researchers here. So that was a big one for sure. Uh, there was also talk of potentially getting involved in green battery initiatives with, with the EU. Uh, there's going to be a, a bit of a fund announced at the COP summit that's coming up later this month or next month, I suppose, now in Dubai. And uh, Canada has now been invited to be part of that. So it was largely focused on innovation and, and green energy tech Uh your, the EU was touting Canada's ability to provide materials for uh, for electric vehicle batteries, for instance, because we're the only one of the only countries with all the raw materials in place. So some of those partnerships focus on that as well. So those mm. were the, the the main thrusts of the big announcements. It, it's a partnership that makes some sense uh, between the EU and Canada, generally speaking. It was you have to go back to the Harper government days when the broad strokes of a European Union uh, free trade deal, deal was struck. Now that's that's hit a couple stumbling blocks along the way, uh, mm. basically because uh, the EU said, uh, you know, uh, countries leave, like England, for example. Like England, yeah. <laughs> uh, like England, for example. <laughs> I'm not sure if you remember that drama. And then, of course, you know, like wars breaking out inside their borders. So uh, they've yeah. got some other concerns that have made the, the completion of that deal 
ideal to be a little bit complex, but you can still see where there's a strong desire in terms of both sides developing these relationships on the on the European to Canada side, natural resources, and from the Canadian perspective, just access to more markets, densely populated markets. And that goes back to sort of this um, political alignment that you've heard the current government talk a lot about, looking for like-minded trade partners rather than just big trade partners. Exactly. And that's where things get a bit interesting, because right now, that definition suits the EU to a T. They're very much aligned. Uh, the European Parliament right now is not particularly protectionist. They're they're very okay with international partnerships, as is the current Canadian regime. So they're very much aligned in terms of not only their desire for those kind of partnerships, but the sorts of partnerships that they want to execute. Uh, where things might get a little more complicated is when some of those players start to change. Yeah. So there are EU parliamentary elections set for next year. And a lot of the experts are warning that this could mean a significant shift, depending on how things go. We've seen a number of more far-right governments elected in Europe. We know there's a certain amount of pushback against the EU. Uh, the, one, the way one pundit that my colleague Sarah Smelly spoke to put it was that there's cracks emerging in the EU's defenses against far-right ideology. And that could be reflected in Parliament when those elections happen next year. And Ursula von der Leyen, the current EU president, may not be able to hold on to her position. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, uh, that's one of many factors that could start to change the the Canada-EU dynamic. Um, some would depend, too, on what happens here domestically and presumably yeah, 2025 no when the yeah, next election no might doubt. be. Yep. Yep. So that that's, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, and another potential wild card, of course, is uh, the United States, always uh, kind of a shadow player in this relationship. If uh, if Donald Trump, let's say, were to be reelected next year, which is in fact a possibility, uh, that's another one where pundits and historians have pointed out that during the first Trump presidency, Canada had a certain buffer in the EU in terms of partners and, and those who were more ideologically aligned than he was. Mm -hmm. If you have different players in all of those three countries, then that dynamic is sure to yeah. be transformed, not just changed, mm -hmm. like radically, radically different. Well, Michelle, that is diplomacy and high-level geopolitics. Let's get to something a little bit more local, moving on to something out of yes. Montreal. <laughs> Montreal bar and nightclub owners are asking the city to revisit noise bylaws. Now, it's more than just the bylaws, Michelle, but what's at issue here? What's, it's an interesting one, actually. My, my colleague Thomas McDonald did a nice job with this story, just highlighting how... Old bylaws can hinder urban development and neighborhood vibrancy and a music scene. Uh, so this was all looked at through the lens of small music venues. Uh, he led off with the anecdote of a, a bar that's not known to me, but residents of Montreal might know Turbo House. Dave, I assume you do too. Mm, no, I don't run in those circles anymore, Michelle. Fair, fair. But anyway... <laughs> Um, so this is a club that 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 moved that put in all kinds of money into soundproofing. They're even paying three thousand two hundred bucks a month extra to keep the two apartments above the venue empty to mitigate noise complaints, and they're still facing them. And the the message from these music venues like Turbo House and many others is that Montreal has super outdated bylaws that don't reflect changing neighborhoods that don't allow for mixed-use neighborhoods that discourage music venues from being in areas that, that would be a little more residential, even though there's lots to suggest that that is, in fact, quite a good model for, for urban sustainability and diversity. Um, 
so they're calling for a totally different approach to Montreal's bylaws to allow these music venues to survive because a lot of them say that they are not able to keep up. The noise complaints favor the, those who make the complaints. They have no real means of recourse. Um, the, the application of them is pretty arbitrary. So they, they have mm. a lot of issues with the current system. Like you said, Michelle, this is a story about urban development as much as it is about sort of individual noise complaints on bars. For a long time, the Montreal scene, this is where I do run in these circles, you tended to have main drags and residential around the main drag. But as mm-hmm. density is starting to become more and more popular, and hey, a street like Montreal is a desirable street to build some apartments on, or Sherbrooke Street, or St. Catherine Street, or even sure. even, even other in fills in the downtown core so what used to be deeply deeply bar oriented and club oriented areas that were sort of business during the day and nightclub at night are starting to become more residential so that's where you start getting into this idea where this is what really jumped out to me in the article saying you need to put some sound mitigation uh, rules into your building code and that really fascinates me as a concept to say hey we can still build apartments over bars and we can still build condos around bars and nightclubs, but you have to have something in your building standard that says, we don't want to leave this new resident susceptible to blaring music all night. Because by the way, the bar's still going to close at three in the morning because that's like that's what makes Montreal Montreal. That's what we do. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's a really good point. And that is exactly what they're calling for is that that kind of fundamental change. And they point to the fact that it is in place in other cities. Uh, like Toronto, which is not often held up as a beacon of much. But uh, this is one case where they're saying Toronto has implemented what they call an agent of change principle into their standards and building codes. So that does allow for people to account for pre-existing conditions when making new ones. So in a, in a time when we have the current housing crisis and we're desperate to find places to build, to, to, to accommodate an expanding population, uh, mixed-use neighborhoods, like what you're describing is the the opposite of the old Montreal set up with with very clearly delineated residential and and commercial activities. Um, Mixed-use neighborhoods would be a a good way to start tackling the housing supply issue. And to do that, there's so many changes that need to be made. We've talked about infrastructure needs, but this noise, this bylaw aspect is a whole other piece of the puzzle. Yeah, well, because you know what the flip side is here, right? It's that you're going to start getting rid of bars and nightclubs and the things that give a community a texture. Now, listen, there is yeah. a housing crisis. To say nothing of the economic impact of that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, like, like yeah. there is a housing crisis and that needs to be dealt with. But the answer is not just a bunch of giant glass condos and a bunch of retail stores on the main floor, right? Like like there needs exactly. to be, you yeah. need to make sure that a city still has some fun built into it. Just because just you have enough houses doesn't necessarily mean people don't want to have fun. Exactly. And and frankly, the, these small music venues and small cultural spaces proved to be launching pads for major, major Canadian acts. So that has that, that helps to shape Canadian culture more broadly in cases like this. Yeah. yeah. The kind of music venues that, that uh, Thomas spoke to for the story have, I've, you know, they used to play host to lesser known bands at the time, like Arcade Fire, for instance, mm-hmm, it wanted to be huge. Mm-hmm. So like, there are all kinds of economic and cultural issues tied to what seems like a, a small Byzantine piece of a noise bylaw, but no, <laughs> the, the ripple effects are are, are real, and it, it is the foundation for for much bigger issues. Michelle, thank you for always helping me think fondly of my old hometown. I appreciate it. <laughs> Anytime, it's a great town. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, consultations are underway for the Canada Disability Benefit. So, ideally, what should the benefit look like? Kelly Braun Johnson has some ideas and 
so do I. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.